Welcome to a new edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, a valued member of our community for over 70 years. AT&T, who reminds us, don't be distracted, drive carefully. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. As we have talked before, everyone has a story that has twists and turns that have brought them to this point. We have shown that their stories teach us life lessons and business formulas that have contributed to their success and can be shared to help others learn from these stories. But these stories also talk about challenges and sacrifices along the way. And only with hard work and perseverance do we succeed. We look forward to another great podcast on the twists and turns that completed their story. Today's guest is Jim Murray, the former president and CEO of Universal Music Group Distribution and referred to as the last of the music industry distribution giants. Jim and his wife, Nanette, have been members of our community since 2003. Before we hear Jim's stories about his personal life and life in the record business, let's have Jim start his story where it began, in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Marty. My story really starts on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay where my father was born. He was brought up in a small town, eventually played AAA baseball, was drafted into the, the Army and spent five years in the Army during World War II. When he got out of the Army, he got a job with the FBI. For the first few years, he worked in places like Chicago and Knoxville and doing kind of colorful FBI stuff like chasing bank robbers. But in the early 50s, he was transferred to Washington, D.C. Nice coincidence, since he's from Maryland. That's where he met my mother. That was the beginning of his last 25 years. He was with the FBI 30 years. His last 25 years were doing Russian counterintelligence he was in Maryland doing that, met my mom, had my brother and I. I can't say, unlike some of your stories, I can't say that I had uh, a difficult childhood at all. Although my parents did separate when I was quite young, we never lacked for anything, even though an FBI agent sounds great, but actually they didn't pay anything. There was certainly no such thing as an allowance ever in my family. We didn't lack for anything. We didn't feel any different than anybody else. We certainly didn't feel poor. We did what we had to do. My dad was a great example of a work ethic because he did work his ass off. And in the FBI in those days, the surveillance, and he would work nights, and he would work days, and he would be following Russians around in the middle of the night in Washington, D.C. But when he came home, he was all ours, and he was a, a great dad and a great influence on me my whole life, certainly the most important influence I had. I was very blessed. He lived to be 93 years old. At any rate, 
And one of the times when my parents were split up, some of his FBI friends, agent friends, took him out to a golf course. He had never played golf. And that was the beginning of his love affair with golf. And soon he infected my brother and I with that love for golf. And we started playing at little public courses around, actually eventually joined a small country club that was literally across the street from where we lived, and we were very lucky. I played every sport there was. I played baseball. I was a pretty good basketball player until I stopped growing at about age 15. But golf became my love and became the sport that I love the most. And it had a continuing effect on me uh, throughout my life, as I'm sure I'll get to. I'm almost ashamed to say this because I don't play at all now because of physical problems, but I actually went to the University of Maryland on a partial scholarship. That was a wonderful experience. I was never a star. There were 14 guys on the team. I was always on the margin of going. Either five or six or seven guys would go to play in every tournament. And finally, by my junior year, I was good enough that I played in some that were six or seven. Now, just to be clear, I was certainly not in the caliber of our top couple of players who went on to win tournaments on the tour, nor was I, it would be a joke, I had a one at the time, my best handicap. To go to a major college nowadays as a one handicap would be a a complete joke. You wouldn't even think about it. These guys are all plus threes, plus fours. But the one thing that that taught me, as much as I loved, loved, loved golf, was that I wasn't good enough to make that my career. I took college a little more seriously than I did in high school. I went to the University of Maryland. I realized that I had to do something else. I had worked all my life, started out as a young kid, you know, mowing lawns and raking leaves. Then when I got big enough, I caddied, which was a fantastic job because it paid relatively well. And and it wasn't painful because I enjoyed being on the golf course. Then in the winter, would work in the local drugstore or whatever. While I was in college, at the kind of the end of my college, the local branch manager for CBS Records offered me a job, a part-time job working for them. He, had, he liked me. I was a kind of a jock around town. Here again, believe it or not, for those of you that have seen me swing a golf club uh, now, he was a wonderful guy. He offered me this job in the music business Strictly part-time, not colorful, going around to warehouses, counting records, calling on the local college radio stations, things of that nature. But it was a great job because I got free concert tickets. I got free albums. These things were great because that was the key to a lot of girls and a lot of dates and a lot of fun. I remember one of the albums that came out at that time was uh, the first Billy Joel album, the one with Piano Man on it, that became famous. I must have given away a hundred of those to various girls back in those days, just trying to do what I could to get a date. I graduated college and then entered law school, continued to work for CBS Records. CBS was a wonderful company at that time. It was the Tiffany Network as it was called back then, 
Uh, it was a class act all the way. They treated their employees wonderfully. Uh, they offered lots of uh, lots of classes and seminars and things to increase your your knowledge and eventually make you a better manager if you were in management. Uh, they encouraged some competition against your peers, but it was a great place to be, and it was a great place to develop yourself. I did not finish law school because, frankly, I was broke and, and my dad was broke. It's unlike today when we think nothing of writing a check for $65,000 for Wharton. Back in those days, I remember my tuition was $550 a year. But that $550 was tougher for my dad to come up with than it was for Nanette and I to come up with the $65,000 to send our kids to college. So I continued to work part-time and until... Uh, I was kind of sick of law school, driving a jalopy. Things were not good. I was living with my dad, who was long divorced from my from my mom, making my money caddying on the weekends and, of course, working for CBS. After a year of law school, they came to me, they, CBS, came to me, and they offered me a full-time position as a sales rep in the Washington, D.C. area. At that time, the record companies had 21 branches in all the major cities and in all the major markets. They were putting on an extra sales rep in Washington, D.C. I didn't have to think about it too long. They offered, they had calculated out what I would make, commission sales, of course, but they calculated out that I would make $16,000. Now, I had just had a friend who had been an excellent golfer, Henry DeLosier, who had just graduated from law school and had gotten a clerkship working for a judge, which was a hell of a job right out of law school. And he was making $12,000. So I thought, well, so I'll go out and I'll do this music thing for a while, and then I can always go back to law school. Now, surprisingly, you would think... You know, the conversation with my FBI dad about, you know, I'm going to quit law school and go to work in the music business would have been a difficult one. But like everything else in my life, my dad supported me. I did that and started selling records literally to record stores around Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Actually, I made $18,000 that first year. And I worked hard. I realized that this was what I was going to do. I loved music. I loved the business. The more I learned about it, I just thought, this is something for me. But I also realized that you had to move up the ladder. I knew that as much as I loved it, I wouldn't want to be a record salesman for 30 years. I was very focused on that. CBS offered me all these management classes, and you got to know some of the other guys who were taking them because they were all after the same jobs you were. I was very fortunate. I did well as a sales rep, and they had various sales programs. Most of the older guys, most of the younger guys didn't really care because it's not like there was a cash prize to come in first on the sales program. But I wanted to be first. I, would, I just wanted to be that way. I continued on until finally they were having interviews at a convention for the next step up the ladder, which would have been sales manager. In the big cities, in the five big cities, they had a sales manager in addition to a branch manager. 
they had told us I was one of the ones that they were going to interview. You go in and you're interviewed by five vice presidents. They're literally sit, sit in a circle around you. You're in the middle and they they drill you with questions. And I was ready. I had uh, done my homework. As a side comment, interviews are something that you can practice for. Don't just go into an interview. Sit down and think about what people are going to offer you. What are they going to ask? Why do you want to be here? Why do you want this job? Why don't you like your last job? I had made index cards so that I had those answers. Boom, 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 boom. I was ready. At this convention, it was kind of the wild bunch. We would have a big dinner with four or five big artists, you know, Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand, all from, from small artists you'd never heard of up to superstars. And then, of course, everybody had been drinking and having a good time, and everybody was young, and we would go out and we would chase around. And because we knew that we had the next afternoon off, the only afternoon off in the, in the convention, we stayed out until about five o'clock in the morning. We got no sleep, but we didn't care because the next morning there was a long presentation, music presentation. Then we had the afternoon off and we thought we'd catch up on our sleep. So after the music presentation, my friend, who was also one of the guys being interviewed, said, uh, hey, I've got some uh, hash. Would you like to smoke some? And I said, well, yeah, sure, let's do that. And then let's go across the street. Let's not eat the rubber chicken they're serving in there. Let's go across the street to McDonald's. We got high. We went over to McDonald's. I remember I ate two Big Macs, had a milkshake. We came back, got in the elevator to go up to our rooms to take a snooze, and the door opens halfway up, and there's one of the vice presidents in charge of the interviewing. And he said, we're ahead of schedule. We want to take somebody else right now. I want to take one of you guys. God was looking after me because he pointed at the other guy and he said, Joe, come on, we're going to interview you now. And that was a, that was a wonderful thing because, uh, believe me, I couldn't have even, I was in no shape to do an interview. I was so full of McDonald's and hash that I couldn't have even answered a question. Fortunately, the next day was my interview. If I must say so myself, I knocked it out of the park, got the next sales manager job, which opened up, which was in New York City. That's the launching pad for a career if you're at CBS. Before we go on to the next, and I hate to interrupt here because we're just getting into the good stuff, <laughs> uh, but there are some questions I have as to the point that you got here. And let me go back even to the start, Jim. You said there were no hardships when you were growing up, as in some of our stories. And I think more than anything else, it's not about hardships that happened. It was just the way life was then. You speak with great reverence about your dad and what an influence that he's had on you. He led you with great examples. I mean, the great work ethic. He was a good guy. And more importantly than anything, as you've said, I think about your dad, he was present. He was always present for you. Other than mowing lawns and being a caddy, what other sorts of jobs did you have at that time when you first started? And then the next thing I'd like you to answer is, at any point in your young life, did you say, I can't wait to be in the record business or I can't wait to be in entertainment? Was that even a thought of yours when you were young? No, <laughs> that was never a thought. I didn't know there was a record business. I knew, I knew that I loved music. 
I listen to it all the time. Um, my dad had a uh, one of these big, you know, hi-fis, they called it. It was about eight feet long in the living room. The only records that he owned were show tunes, which were great. I listened to them. I mean, I, I listened to whatever I could get at that point. I, I didn't think about it. I never thought that I was anything other than blessed. I was happy. I had a great childhood. My dad, when he came home... During the daylight, I mean, immediately we were going to go out and we were going to play catch in the front yard. Or later on, when I got into golf, we were going to go out. We couldn't always afford to to belong to that little golf course across the street. But, you know, if you go out at five or six o'clock, the starter's gone and we would go out and we would literally play until it would be so dark that when he... When he was teeing off, I would have to stand behind him to watch where the ball was going to go and vice versa. We were really, really great then. You know, it's just a wonderful time with him. I became diabetic, type 1 diabetic, insulin-dependent diabetic, when I was 15. I know that that worried him sick, but he never babied me. He never acted like I couldn't handle it. You know, I think that's really a blessing. And we didn't go to a lot of specials, special doctors. We didn't, if there were any such thing, we didn't know about it and we couldn't afford it. Diabetes, you know, I've now been diabetic for 53 years. I think American Diabetic Association gives you an award after 50 years, although I never applied for mine. You know, here again, this is just dumb luck because it's not like I was eating vegetables when I was 15 years old, you know. I was doing all the things that kids do and eating the stuff that kids do. At any rate, I had the interview. I got the sales manager job in New York, which was wonderful. I became very close friends with a big account, King Carroll. King and Carroll, two guys that were golf nuts. I would go out and I would play at their course out in Long Island. Frankly, they were terrible and I was still reasonably good then. That was a great connection for me because what happened was I was promoted from sales manager in New York to a branch manager in Florida, which is a relatively small branch, 12 or $13 million at the time and a dozen employees. And suddenly they needed a, a New York branch manager. There had never been a New York branch manager under 40 years old. Uh, and I was at this point uh, 28 or 9, I guess. But because of golf, because of my relationship with golf, and because of their clout, King and Carol insisted to the higher-ups that I become the New York branch manager. And, you know... God love them. Uh, I, I'm sure they had uh, other problems with getting guys to take that job. You know, a 50-year-old guy doesn't want to move his family cold to uh, New York. I was kind of newly married, and it was not a problem. Because that was a launching pad. Getting that job as head of the New York branch was a big job. Forty-some people, $50 million but mostly because of all the politics, because there's so much politics involved in the music business. Uh, I'll give you an example. There is a, there's a record store block down the street from the CBS building. Well, when an artist or an artist manager or an artist lawyer came in to renegotiate a contract, the first place they went was that record store 
because they wanted to be able to go in and be aggressive and start the meeting out by saying, you know, you don't even have all of our records next door and there's not a display. And that store became the kind of the bane of my existence. But I actually hired a full-time employee that spent five days a week all day long in that store, sometimes taking a display down Sometimes putting a display up in the morning and then taking it down in the afternoon. <laughs> Just silly political stuff that went on. But, you know, when Barbara Streisand was coming in to renegotiate her contract, I didn't want to be responsible for them being able to come in and bitch. That was a wonderful job also because I'm dealing with 21-year-old kids right out of college, or maybe not out of college, and I'm also dealing with 60-year-old sales reps, and it was a great training ground. The one story that I remember clearly about that was uh, I got to spend a day with Walter Cronkite. Walter used to, every decade, he would put out a box set of, at that time, vinyl albums. I can hear it now, the sounds of the 50s, the sounds of the 60s, the sounds of the 70s. So this is like 1981, I'm 29 years old, and Walter is putting his new one out. It's strictly a PR thing, but Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. He was broadcast news every night. He was on the board of directors of CBS. He was an important guy. So the deal was we were going to do a, a, an in-store signing, kind of an early morning, 9 o'clock thing at that store down the street. And then he was going to do a second one in the biggest record store in Philadelphia, which I was also responsible for. In the first one, I was just worried about things going right and things being okay. And then uh, Walter and I jumped in a limousine and went over to the uh, West Side helipad and got in the CBS corporate headquarter helicopter, which is nothing like the ones you see on TV. Believe me, it was very, very luxe. Just the two of us, and I got to spend another hour with, with Walter flying to Philadelphia. We got there a little early. He was hungry. We walked down the shopping mall. There was really no one there. Some mothers pushing baby carriages who all did double takes. We asked, and it's not like today when there's a food court in every in every mall. Back then, there was only one place to eat. The guy said, yeah, Joe's Hot Dogs is down at the end. So we go down there, and Joe's served hot dogs and sauerkraut. I remember I didn't want my sauerkraut, so Walter loved sauerkraut, so he took mine. We went back to the store, did the the whole in-store appearance signing thing. He was very gracious. And then we got in the limousine and went back to get in the helicopter and fly back to New York. At this point, and here I am, 29 years old, I'm calling him Walter, um, which I can't believe when I think back about it. But at this point, we're, you know, we're talking about interesting things. And, and I said, uh, one, for instance, I said, Walter, what, what do you like on television? And he said, Wall Jim. This is my Walter Cronkite imitation. Wall Jim. I like game shows. And I said, Walter, really? You like game shows? And he said, I love The Price is Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that was interesting. But the one thing that he said, I asked him what the most shocking thing he had ever covered in his career in the news. And he had covered, you know, Vietnam and all sorts of stuff. And he said, the most memorable in a bad way 
I was in Nagasaki three days after they dropped the bomb. And I will never forget that. It was a terrible thing. I said, well, I, Walter, at least I think the world is more sane now, and I think we won't see that again. And he said to me, actually, Jim, I think that we will see it again, unfortunately. It's too widespread. Too many people have it. There's too many differences of opinion in the world. I do think that we will see it again. And that to a, you know, a 29-year-old guy with, you know, a baby and another one on the way and a big mortgage, that was a shocking statement from Walter. The wonderful part about it is, of course, he's been wrong probably the only time in his life that he's been wrong, at least thus far. It hasn't happened in um, 39 years. Just to move the story along, I, um, I was hired away by, there were six big um, corporate music companies, and I was hired away by one of our competitors to go and be head of national sales, which was a great job. This was Polygram Records. As luck would have it, Polygram had never been able to, as I say, break an egg, break a record, have any hits. But we got there, and all of a sudden, Polygram got hot. We, we were breaking lots of records. Bon Jovi, uh, uh, Def Leppard, we were particularly into the big hair bands. That was a great job. Here again, my, my sales time in Washington, D.C. helped me out. Eventually, I got promoted from there, from the sales job to head of marketing for Polygram Records. The funny thing about the music business is the further you move up the ladder the further you get away from the music. And, you know, you're too low to be involved with the artists when you're a sales guy, and you're, you're almost too high when you're a CEO. As head of marketing, I was involved with artists all the time, every day, making videos, album covers, things like that, things that were going out into America as part of our culture. And, and I always thought that that was maybe the greatest job that I ever had as far as cultural impact. I got to hang around with a lot of artists. I had a lot of fun. I used to go out on the road. I always enjoyed being out on the road with them. And of course, there were always all kinds of wild uh, antics that you can't imagine. I remember once one of our bands, I won't name it, they were out with Motley Crue, who was not our band. Somehow they had pissed Motley Crue off. Back in those days, you know, those hair bands, hairspray was more important than the guitars almost. So one of the Motley Crue guys goes down to one of the leader of our, uh, of our group, uses three cans of hairspray on the guy's door, and then sets it on fire. Of course, we're downstairs and we're calling the guy, and he's not coming, and he's not coming, and he's not coming. And finally, we said, "Why aren't you here?" And he said, "Well, I have a young lady here with me, and I didn't think it was an emergency." There are a lot of stories that aren't fit to tell on a uh, on a family oh, program like this. Oh, you can go ahead. But, Any uh, stories that you have. The most famous story about bands on the road happened a little before my time. Led Zeppelin uh, came to America. They were huge and unknown, and had never been here before. And they became famous for trashing hotels and hotel rooms. Everywhere they went, that was what they did. Uh, it was a wild night every night that they were here. One morning, they're checking out of the hotel, headed for the airport. Their manager is settling up with the manager of the hotel. 
the manager of the hotel said, okay, so that's everything except the, the televisions. They, they threw eight televisions out the window, and they're $400, $400 a piece. So the manager just peels off $3,200. The hotel manager says, you know, I don't get it. What is so fun about throwing TVs out the window? And the manager says, oh, you've never done it. It's great fun. Here, have one on us. And he peels <laughs> off another $400. <laughs> so they're being inducted. I walked into a little side stage bathroom that uh, wasn't open to the public. There's three urinals, and I walk up to the middle urinal, and right after me, uh, Robert Plant walks up and takes the urinal to my right. Ten seconds later, here comes Jimmy Page, the guitarist, and stands on the other side of me. So I think, wow, this is a rock and roll experience. I'm, I'm, peeing with, uh, I'm peeing with Led Zeppelin. These guys at this point, you know, they talked back and forth over my head. They were talking about their grandchildren the whole time. So they weren't the same band that was destroying televisions. Tell me some of the artists that were just terribly difficult to deal with. And tell me some of the good guys or good ladies for that matter. Recording artists are just like any subset that you might uh, draw of the out of the population. Some of them are lovely people and some of them are assholes. That's just the way it is. So for instance, John Bon Jovi, who's one of my probably best friends as far as an artist goes, could not be a nicer guy in every way. As opposed to, I hate to give you names, but I'll give you one. John Mellencamp was impossible in every way and never happy. And there were lots that were in between. John was such an extreme that I don't mind using his name. Gene Simmons wasn't one of my favorites either, I guess, if I'm going to throw another name out there. But yeah, I but was managing these or not managing, but at least working with and wanting to get the most out of these personalities. That's I mean, you're part you're part psychiatrist, you're part uh, cheerleader, you're you I mean, this is a challenging it, bit it of work. It's a challenging role. You get fired once in the entertainment business no matter what you do and and we all got fired. There were half a dozen of us that came in together into, into this Polygram Records, and all half a dozen of us got fired. I then got to work for the great Clive Davis, a wonderful man, probably the most uh, famous music executive that there's ever been. I won't go into his whole history, but let me just say, he started by signing Janis Joplin, and he wound up signing Whitney Houston, and uh, on and on. There's a great... Um, I don't want to call it a documentary, but there's a great film about him on Netflix, and I would highly recommend it. And uh, I got to work for Clive for uh, for a number of years, learned a lot, thought I knew it all and found out I didn't. And then uh, Universal came after me. And a wonderful man, a man who became my mentor, Doug Morris, hired me. At this point, I was divorced from my first wife. She had moved away to Virginia. We were living in Connecticut. She had moved to Virginia. I wasn't with my kids. And the universal job was in California, and I'd always wanted to live in California. So I jumped at the chance. 
and came out to California. The idea was I was going to be executive vice president to uh, another legendary character named Henry Droz. Henry was coming out of retirement just for two years. I got along great with Henry, and we did some great things. And then uh, he retired, and I became president and later CEO. It was the beginning of a very dark time in the music business because... Napster, a thing called Napster, which Sean Fanning uh, invented, basically taught people how they could trade files, music files in this case. And I remember the first time I went on Napster, which was probably uh, 1999, there were 800,000 people that were trading files. Trading files is a nice way for saying stealing music because they were literally stealing music either because, you know, they they all had an excuse, you know. Records are too expensive. Uh, there's only one cut on a good cut on an album, whatever. It was stealing. And I will kind of uh, never forgive Congress for not stepping up and doing more about it. The music business from 1999 or maybe 2000, when Napster was really popular, between 2000 and 2006, the music business went down 55%. We let 61% of our employees go. It was a very dark, very, very difficult time with no light at the end of the tunnel. You couldn't give a CD away to a college kid, which is, of course, had been our best customers prior to that. Steve Jobs opened the iTunes store in 2002. The iTunes store fascinated everyone and set a lot of precedents, but it didn't stop this theft that was going on. It was just a finger in the dike, I guess you would say. Although it grew and grew and grew to the point where the iTunes store at one point was uh, 52% of the business in the United States and as high as 55% in many territories in the world. But it did not stop the theft. It did not stop people ignoring CDs and moving on. It was a very difficult time, a very, very difficult time. We had to make a lot of tough decisions. One of the things we did at that time, because CDs were 1898 at that time, which was preposterous, I thought. We did something that was called Jumpstart in the industry, where we lowered the price of CDs from 1898 list to 1298 list. This was a very radical move on our part. We would sell a, a CD to a record store. They would get a discount for buying it. They would get advertising, which was just a gift. They didn't use it for any advertising. And it wound up, you know, that 1898 CD that we were selling for 1205, we were actually only netting $9.50 on. It was shocking that we had survived as long as we had with that. So we changed it. We dropped the price. We took away the advertising. We took away the sales programs, the discounts. It literally made the retailers furious it made the labels, which fed me the product, furious. Thank God Doug Morris, our chairman, was 100% behind it. I remember he called me after one particularly terrible meeting where I'd had a terrible meeting with a big uh, customer in the Midwest, and I was in the Detroit airport and listened on a conference call to a meeting that the labels had where they also hated me. And Doug called me afterward, and he said, don't worry about it. 
He said, I don't care if those guys like it. I don't care what the retailers think. I like it, and I'm behind you, and I'll do and go anywhere I have to do to make that work. It completely changed the outlook of the business. We launched this in 2004. 2004 and five were the biggest years that Universal had ever had. This is prior to streaming. It really kind of turned the tide a little bit for us. The company that I was running also did the, the movies for Universal Pictures. We did four and a half billion dollars that year. We did about two and a half billion every year in, in music and that year was a particularly big year in DVDs. We had Shrek and the Grinch. We were a big company and doing very well. So just to fast forward to today, the music business is much better today. It's great. The streaming completely changed everything. People don't, for the most part, bother to steal music because why would you? If Spotify is free if you want to listen to commercials. Or for $10 a month, you can go to Spotify or Apple or Amazon or whoever you want to and listen to all the music that's ever been recorded. It's really a very, very uh, different situation than it is now. Being president and CEO, to go back to your comment, Marty, it is a weird job because the phone rings, maybe it's the CEO from Walmart, and the next phone call that comes is an irate manager mad about something. The next phone call might actually be the artists themselves. The next phone call might be from a label head who feels like they had a hit record. It's not doing as well as it should, and what are we doing about it? So you really have to be almost schizophrenic in your ability to deal with people and deal with these kinds of people. There are a number of jobs in the music business, different levels in the music business, where you need that talent. You need to be able to deal with people. I remember once I actually snuck out to get a haircut across the street, and my boss's assistant calls and says, he's on the phone with Prince, and Prince is out of his mind, and he wants you to take the call. He's got somewhere to go. We turn off the clippers, and I get on the phone with Prince, and Prince is on send. He doesn't want to hear a word I have to say. He wants to bitch. Prince was always convinced that the record companies were cheating him out of royalties downplaying his sales figures, et cetera, et cetera. And that was about a 25-minute, not fun conversation. But at some point toward the end, I think after his adrenaline ran out, I said something funny. I don't remember what it was. And we were able to chat. Fortunately, because I'm a fan of his, I was able to actually talk about some specific songs that I really liked. That calmed him down some. And I think people in the music business in certain positions, have to be able to get along with anybody and everybody. I think that's just part of what it is. It's crazy sometimes. I mean, I know guys now that do radio promotion that didn't graduate from high school and make $800,000 a year. That's just the way it's that kind of personality and having a happy childhood probably helps. <laughs> it's just a constant changing business, too. You have to really be prepared to do whatever it takes to be successful. And if you're not growing, if you're not changing with the times, I can't imagine another business that you need that ability to do that. It's hard to imagine another business that's gone from 100% physical to 90% digital. 
As a CEO, you have to see that coming. And I studying digital before Napster even because we all knew that it was out there and we all knew that it was either an opportunity or a danger. And you have to, you know, see those things ahead of time and be able to look ahead and not be afraid that it's going to hurt your business. After I retired from Universal, I was asked to join another company, some friends of mine, and we all had the same very strong belief in the value of intellectual property in the digital world. I believe that with all the changes that we've seen in the last 10 years, say 20 years, I believe that we're just on the cusp. I think the next 20 years, we're going to see even more changes because I think it's it's easier now. You know, it used to be if you had an idea, if you had an idea for an app, you basically had to sit down and write code and hire a staff to write code. And it was difficult. Whereas now you can pretty much take any chunk of code that you want off the shelf somewhere, customize it for what you're going to do. So now the creativity is not so much about writing the computer code. It's about just coming up with ideas to use it. I think that it's going to be a very exciting next few years for what's going to happen. How important is it, Jim, and this has evolved, I guess, just the ability to identify talent? It is everything. It is everything. You need to be able to identify the people that are going to make it and the people that aren't. And a lot of that has to do with things like how driven is that artist? Is that artist going to work as hard as you are? Is that artist clean or a drug addict? There's a lot of that involved. It's very different than it was where, you know, a, a guy would go in and see a, an act in a club that he liked and then sign that act and you would have to start from scratch. It costs a lot of money. Whereas now, most of the initial A&R, artists and repertoire searching, is done on YouTube where you can go on, you can look at artists there, you can get an idea of what they, are, they sound like, you can see how many followers they have. And if you get interested and sign one of those artists, you're not starting from scratch because they've got 50,000 or 100,000 followers. You already have some idea of what, they can, what they're capable of and where you think you can take them. What does it take to establish a hit today? Well, of course, we're talking streams now. We're right. not talking. Exactly. So, Radio is still very important in getting it out to the masses, but also online, YouTube, as much as we don't love YouTube as an industry because they don't pay us per stream very well, that's where kids go to look for new things and cool things. So, you, you know, you're, you're trying to find that artist that radio is going to like, that they're going to be able to make a cool video that they're going to be able to go out and tour and work. They're few and far between. I remember we distributed some artists, some uh, labels that we did not own. We had an independent uh, distribution company that we started. These were for labels that didn't want to be owned by a corporation. And one day there was a guy named Scott Borchetta who did work for Universal in Nashville, kind of a famous radio promotion guy in Nashville. Scott was in his next to last week at the label, and he was the last one there one night. A young girl comes in with her mother, plays a few songs for him, and he said, you know, you are just fantastic. I think you're tremendous, but I'm leaving. I'm going to go start my own label. 
and I'm leaving next week, so you need to come back and talk to the people that are here and the people that can make a decision about signing you. And uh, he didn't think anything more about it. And about a week later, Taylor Swift called him back and said, you know, I really liked you and I want to be on your label when you start it. This is 14-year-old Taylor Swift. Uh, you know, that's a that's a wonderful success story. I, I, I gave Scott an advance, I think, of $50,000 to start that label because we believed in him as a record guy. He just sold the label for $300 million, so... <laughs> Not a bad bad investment, but timing is everything, and those are the twists and turns we talk about all the time. Right, and Taylor was a great songwriter, was very, very driven. She would be on her tour bus, and this is back when she hadn't sold many records at all, and she would be on her tour bus, and she would get on Twitter and Facebook, and she would tell her fans, look, you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere, but I'm going to be in small town Arkansas and we're going to park in the Walmart, 24-hour Walmart parking lot. Please come on down if you want to. I'd love to meet you and I'll be glad to sign your CDs if, you, if you've got them or if you want to buy one. And she did that night after night after night for hundreds, hundreds of nights She was just a very driven artist. When you see uh, an artist with, with that talent and that drive, you're willing to make a gamble. When we talk about your business, overnight sensations. There's very few of those. It very takes few. work. It takes perseverance. Jim, I could ask you questions from now on. We could be here for a couple of days. <laughs> but what I'd like to also know is with all your accomplishments, What drives you today? What do you look at today? Are you still active? Are you still looking at new opportunities? What gets you excited now? Um, It's hard. You know, when you've been in the business for 45 years plus part-time, you know, it's hard to just walk away. So... As I said, when I left Universal, I got involved in another uh, with a group of guys who believed in intellectual property as I did. Um, We built that up to a very large, the largest independent label in America, which we just sold about a year ago for 10 figures, a couple of billion dollars. Of course, that was exciting, but then I had to take a step back and think, well, what what do I do next? I'm on a couple of boards, advisory board. I'm on the board of a PBS show called Austin City Limits. I do a lot of consulting. I just try to have fun, you know. I don't want to change the way I've lived my life. I've been I've been very lucky. I had, uh, you know, great parents, wonderful dad, great kids. The move to California from New York to California when I joined Universal was very, very significant because that's how I met Nanette, which has been one of the big things of my life. I've been so blessed and probably just flat out lucky. It's not all luck, but but it is sometimes I can understand when you look back on this, had you thought about this story, you said, no way in heck am I going to have this kind of life. This is You're exactly right. And it's such a blessing to be able to work with all those young people, you know. You talk about your dad, as we've talked about, but who else has had the greatest influence on your life? Nanette, Clive Davis, Doug Morris. These are names that people may or may not know, but wonderful people who were mentors and taught me 
things that I didn't realize I didn't know. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that that's a good uh, dad and then Ed and Clive and, and Doug are great people that have done the world to me. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? You want enthusiasm and passion. And I don't think that's just a music business thing. It certainly is a music business thing. But I don't think it's just a music business thing. I think it's really important. And I think that if you're right out of college and you're going in for those first interviews, be enthusiastic. There's nothing wrong with saying, I really want to work here. I think that that counts for a lot. It's not a suck-up move. It's really an important thing because people want that. And, of course, you want people that are going to work hard. And, of course, you're going to want people that are smart. I always tried to hire people that I thought might be a little smarter than me. I never really let them know that, but if I could help it. But I always thought that was important. How would you describe your management philosophy? I never wanted anybody to hate coming to work. That's tough to balance when sometimes you have to sit down and have that hard conversation with somebody. You have to be absolutely brutally honest. And I can say to this day, most of the people that I can remember, unfortunately, there have been so many of them, particularly in the Napster days, but most of the people that I've fired and executives, I'm still, still friends with. And I think that was because I told them the honest truth and I tried to be direct. Uh, as you know, I'm a pretty direct guy. I think people appreciate that. We've asked everybody, what brought you to Bighorn? After 9-11, Nanette didn't want to fly anymore. Unfortunately, I had to start flying not long after, but Nanette wasn't crazy about flying, as was most of the population. The first holiday after that, which I guess was a Thanksgiving, we were thinking, well, what are we going to do? We've got a long weekend, and Nanette suggested, let's go out to the desert. I had, being an East Coast guy, I had never been to the desert. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, we'll go. I'm thinking, geez, yeah, that sounds exciting. But uh, we came out, and uh, I liked it. And we came back in, uh, I guess, Christmas. And we were staying down at the Marriott. And one day I was out playing golf at the Marriott. And uh, Nanette had been thumbing through the book you know, those books they have in hotel rooms. And he, she saw an ad for Bighorn, and she thought, this looks interesting. And she drove up to Bighorn and uh, got a little look around. Ted Llewellyn, God bless him. That was it. I mean, we fell in love with Bighorn. We fell in love with Bighorn not even knowing that the best part of Bighorn was the people. It's been a wonderful thing for us, just a wonderful thing for us and our family. What were your first impressions of Artie Hubbard? Through a long story, I knew, I, I knew the wife of one member here, and Bob Harvey. I went out to play golf with Bob. Actually, I'd played once before with Alan Scuba, I guess. Bob introduced me to Dee. He said uh, he wants to be a member, and I'm the only one that signed his membership application so far. This is after about a 20-minute conversation. And D said, well, give it to me. And he signed my membership application, which I'm glad about. Last question. What advice would you give? I followed this advice, but I've given it to my own kids. I followed it at the time, and I've given it to my own kids, and I've given it to 
people that have asked me, interns and stuff that have asked me since, it's very silly and my kids laugh. My advice is get up in the morning. Every night before we go to bed, we think about what have we got to do the next day. And you decide, okay, well, I'm going to get up. I'm going to work out. I'm going to grab some breakfast, have a shower, wash my hair, do all that, get to the office at whatever. And then that alarm goes off the next day and, uh, well, eh, I won't work out today. Goes off again and it's, well, I don't really need to wash my hair. It's not that big a deal. And then, well, I, I don't really need anything to eat. I can wait until lunch. You've started off your day with, you've compromised your life three times before you've gotten out of bed. And I know that sounds silly, but that's the way it is. And the people that don't do that, I think, are the people that are successful. You have one employee and you call them in and say, I need this report done. It's Monday and I need it by Friday. And it comes in at five o'clock Friday afternoon. You call another one in and you tell them the same thing, you have it Wednesday morning. I think that that's very important. And that discipline of, okay, what have I got to do tomorrow? What time have I got to get up? And then getting up. Now my kids will roar when they hear this because they think it's foolish, but. Well, it's not. And again, in some of our other conversations, people have pointed out, you want to be the person that people count on. So when they have something they want done, they come to you. You do. Because they, you can trust that it's going to get done. When I was in college, I lived with my dad. We couldn't afford a dorm. I went all the way through four years of college taking 8 o'clock classes. We lived about an hour away from, from uh, University of Maryland because I wanted to get the classes over with and get to the golf course because it was a very competitive sort of thing. You know, I think that discipline, even though I never became a great golfer and I don't play at all anymore now, I think that you need to learn from a very early age. That's important. Oh, it absolutely is. Jim, I'm going to reserve the right because I still don't think we got all the stories. <laughs> and I think there's far more that you that you haven't been able to or we haven't had time to do. But So I'm going to reserve the right to have you back. But... I just really want to thank you for coming in today. And this has been very enjoyable. And I think it'll be enjoyable for all of the people that are going to listen to this. Oh, thank you, Marty. Thank you. It means a lot. And Jim, thanks for being with us today and sharing your life and experience. And thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, AT&T, and Back Nine Greens for their support which allows us to bring you these amazing people with extraordinary stories.